0: Uh, doesn't like. I'm Lizzie. I'm Beat. And this is a podcast where we explore as father and daughter the world of contemporary art together.
1: Yes and uh, we're charting new and and, um, quite arid territories and that we're going to be talking a little bit about Namibia but I don't want to give anything away so um, (laughs) I'll leave you to kick off.
0: Well, I know you're very interested in history, Dad. so I thought it would be a good time to discuss a major figure from history who I'm sure you consider yourself to be on par with in terms of fame, and that's Bismarck.
1: Yeah, very interesting. Yes, he was a quite strange figure. Uh, He apparently lived or subsisted on a diet of herrings and champagne,
0: so I don't know
1: how he lived as long as he did.
0: Yeah, well, how old did he live to be?
1: I don't know. I think he was certainly in his seventies.
0: That's oh, geez, Dan. I mean, you're only in your sixties, and you're saying seventies is a very long time. It's not very
1: well. In those, in that era, it was probably uh, yeah. quite well advanced.
0: I guess so. Well, we're not talking directly about Bismarck today. We're actually talking about his great, great, great nephew, Julius von Bismarck.
1: Oh, okay. So that's that's very interesting. It's uh, actually I've. I've got quite an interesting story about uh, German surnames myself because I often find it very tedious in a way to give my own name because <laughs> the name Bede is often misheard, misunderstood, or people ask how to spell it. And so to clear the way and make things easier if I'm picking up coffee or something, I just say Harris. So there isn't any complication. But I remember once, and I think you were with me, going to a pizza shop, and they asked me for my name as I gave the order, and I said von Richthofen. And the thing is, is that the checkout person or the person taking the order didn't bat an eyelid. Obviously, they didn't realise how unlikely it was that a descendant of the Baron von Richthofen would be ordering pizza in Wodonga.
0: No, but they spelt it correctly. I remember that. So maybe, yeah, on the pizza box, we had von Richthofen. (laughs) maybe okay. <laughs> across cross supreme pizza maybe they were also interested in history you lost an opportunity there although i'm not sure your logic really works because i don't think von Richthofen is an easier name to spell than bead but no that's true <laughs> but so julius von bismarck was born in 1983 uh in germany but he grew up in riyadh in saudi arabia uh and his work links art with other areas of research like the natural sciences, technology, Um, so he's very interdisciplinary and he said himself that for some I am a designer, for others an artist, for others an inventive aristocrat. So on that note of the aristocracy, would you like to give a bit of background into his great 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 uncle?
1: Yes, well Bismarck was, although prone to dressing in uniforms, not actually a military person at all. He did do a brief period of service, but he was from the minor nobility in Prussia, and he was a a Junker. Now, the word Junker actually derives from younger, because it was often younger sons who were sent to Prussia to administer estates when the elder son somewhere more centrally in Germany inherited the title but that the concept of the Junker came to be associated with Prussian militarism and the expansion of Prussia and he by various means became the chief minister of Prussia and it was under his architecture or his force and persuasion sometimes moral sometimes military that Germany actually came to be united in 1871 with the kingdom still nominally in existence but under the supremacy of Prussia.
0: And so what role then did the Kaiser play in that? I mean, was he basically the hand behind the...
1: Yes, I think that's, that's a question I don't know the true answer to I I don't think the Kaiser was a mere constitutional figurehead in the same way as Queen Victoria would have been in that era so uh, and eventually the Kaiser dismissed Bismarck so I I don't think that the the Kaiser was subordinate to Bismarck but Bismarck was undoubtedly an extremely forceful figure
0: so not like a Cardinal Richelieu type figure but um still very powerful well so These are all topics that Bismarck, the artist, explores in an exhibition that's on at the Berlinische Gallery here in Berlin until the 14th of August called When Platitudes Become Form. And the centrepiece of that exhibition, which is the subject of our discussion, is a pair of statues. One is a giraffe and one is a reconstruction of an equestrian statue, which means a, a statue of a person on a horse not just a horse alone and they're very popular among you know i mean you see many of them of say louis the 14th and napoleon figures um very powerful figures and it's reconstruction of this statue that's of bismarck and located in bremen so would you like to describe the statues
1: yes so we've got this giraffe that looks like a plush toy And I understand it actually has a, it is made with a giraffe skin. Mm. And next to it is the juxtaposition of the statue of Bismarck in a really imperious style, astride the horse, his chest thrust out in the typical style of of the monumental style to people who were deemed to be important.
0: Yeah. So as you say, that's giraffe skin is a real skin. And there was a note in the gallery saying that it was from a giraffe that died at a Belgian zoo some years ago. So I guess they were trying to head off any Peter style protests, throwing red paint over the statue. But what you'll notice when you look at the statues is that there are breaks in them. You know, they're sort of segmented. I mean, when you see a still photo of them, they're all standing together as one form, but there are Breaks in the form, and that's because they're modeled after, you know, those children to- children's toys, push puppets. You know, where you push yes. the bottom of the base, and then the figure on top, which is joined in bits by wire, collapses.
1: Yes. So the the these the statues also collapse then.
0: Yeah. So obviously they're they're not made using a push mechanism because they're so enormous, but they stand on their plinths and then using. um you know a computer program, they slowly bend to the side. you know you'll see Bismarck's head crick to the side very slowly, then his torso starts to fall, and then slowly the horse starts to lean to one side. It's all very, very slow, so it's not as dramatic as when you play with one of these toys. and the day that I went to see this exhibition, the giraffe wasn't working, and there was some tech support people very nervously lying on the ground behind the statue, connecting a laptop, trying to get it to work. But in principle, they do slowly collapse and they slowly come back up. And Bismarck, the artist, <laughs> says that he was making comparison between the way that children naively do this for fun, making these toys collapse when they play with them, but that this collapse is actually quite brutal. I don't think that that completely comes through in the artworks, because it is so slow. It has more the tone of a slow decline rather than any kind of brutal and sudden collapse. But from your knowledge of, I guess, Bismarck the Elder, what would you say that's a reference to this idea of collapse and the symbolism of the giraffe and the comparison with Bismarck?
1: Well, of course, Germany was a participant in the scramble for Africa, as it was called. And during the 19th century, there was a whole scale intervention by a large number of European powers, the UK, France, Portugal, Spain, uh, Italy, uh, Belgium, all wanting uh, a so-called place in the sun uh, somewhere in Africa to colonize. And, And there were various motives for this. Sometimes it was to extract natural resources and to sell produce it was also partly strategic because this was the era of the coal-fired battleship and what it was necessary to have what we call coaling stations at various places so that you could project your power around the world and there was a major conference in berlin in uh, 1884 and 1885 where the European powers essentially divided up Africa uh, among themselves and determined what their spheres of influence would be so that they wouldn't come into conflict. And, you know, Germany had quite a substantial holding in Africa. There was what's the modern state of Togo, uh, Cameroon, Namibia, um, where, of course, although this was after Bismarck's tenure, uh, there was a terrible genocide of the Herero and Nama people in the early 1900s and what was called German East Africa, which is now Tanzania. Mm. And then, of course, there were colonies in a colony in Papua New Guinea and I think Samoa. So and there was a German concession in Shanghai. So all around the world, there was a chain of German colonies uh, which could serve either strategic or trading purposes.
0: And, of course, in um, Southeast Asia, we have the Bismarck Sea named after Yes. Bismarck,
1: about that. Yeah. yeah,
0: which Julian von Bismarck did touch on in one of his other works in this exhibition um, with some prints on fabric of sort of waves referencing the Bismarck Sea because he went to visit it to see um, this place that was named after his ancestor, not in a a prideful sense, but as a way of interrogating his family and national past. But so, of course, in the context of all that, the giraffe can be seen as obviously quite a blatant and non-specific, I think, symbol of Africa, which is disassembled and slowly reassembled. Which you can see, I mean, when the collapsing mechanism is working as a symbol of I guess, the pressures of colonization and also the horrors of it, and then decolonization and the process of rebuilding and survival through that. So what I guess now is a good point to get your first input and in. what do you think of this work?
1: Well, I, I think with anyone who has a knowledge of German imperialism, it's it's very interesting to see the juxtaposition of the Giraffe and of Bismarck and the uh, transformation that occurs when each of them collapses. So I can see that the there is a metaphor at work here for colonization and the effects it has on the countries colonized and ultimately on the colonizer. So, yeah, I think it's a very interesting form of art and an interesting project
0: well we know how hard it is for you to grasp metaphors we won't once again rehash the infamous slaughterhouse five incident but listeners can go back through our archive and find our discussion of your inability to capture literary metaphor uh,
1: yeah well sometimes you know, if you're if you're a person who's trusting like me, you just accept that what you're reading is the actual thing that happened.
0: But here we've got a symbol you can understand: giraffe equals Africa. Yeah. So, yeah. But I mean, what do you? So we've got here. Obviously, we've got one statue of a giraffe, which is life size, obviously, because it's using this giraffe skin. Then we have a larger than life statue of Bismarck mirroring this monument that still um, is in Bremen. And so when you think it, it, this project is in this school or line of artistic works, which look at the concept of anti-monuments and counter monuments. So those are monumental works like this, which are developed in opposition to the traditional concept of monumentalism. So there are works of art that reject the notion of a monument as an elitist emblem of power. And what Julius von Bismarck says he's trying to do here is focus on Otto von Bismarck's role as a German monument, but not say whether he did something good or bad. But do you think that's possible with a figure as divisive as Bismarck not to make that evaluation? And when you look at this work, do you make that evaluation knowing the background of co- German colonization on the African continent?
1: Well, I mean, that's a very interesting question. Before I answer it, can I just ask is the counter monument movement one that makes monuments to people who were oppressed by those? who in previous ages were deemed to be heroic figures or do they parody those earlier monuments?
0: It can be all of the above um, so either sometimes they play with monuments to these figures who have been cast as heroes like you see here directly with this remaking of the um Bismarck statue or sometimes they do create monuments to those who have been oppressed. Sometimes they also parody. There there are also another stream in the school of counter monuments is, for example, you may have seen it, actually, when you went to the US, this monument, this memorial to the Vietnam War, I think it's in Washington, which is like a big cut in the ground. Yes. And very dark, and you know, it doesn't rise out of the ground, it falls into the ground. And that is obvious. That was very controversial at the time. I mean, it still is because it doesn't glorify the military acts carried out in Vietnam, but rather focuses on the loss and the deep cut, I mean, very, very, and again, yes. here you go, a very clear, nice metaphor for you to grasp, <laughs> the deep wound that that left, not only in the US, but obviously also in Vietnam. So there are a lot of streams in this school of thinking.
1: Okay, well, that, that's interesting. And yes, that's quite true about the Vietnam War Memorial. And one can contrast that with the sculpture of a photograph of the uh, erecting of the american flag at iwo jima with four or five soldiers pushing it up which is obviously one that tends to glorify victory but getting back to this question of what to do about figures from the past it's it's one on which i haven't crystallized my views because there's a, a tension between the interest in these monuments as historic objects and the question of whether or not by having them, one is tolerating or not condemning or ignoring the evil acts that they might have been responsible for. And of course, there's a continuum of evil if you like and at what point do you say well this person's historic record was so awful that we shouldn't build a monument to them or any monuments that have been erected to them should be destroyed or, or not no longer public dis- publicly displayed so it's it's a really interesting question i don't know how far along that continuum of awfulness bismarck is I don't think he's one of the the great demons of history, but obviously given what happened in in some of the German colonies in Africa, there are aspects of his conduct that uh, merit condemnation.
0: I mean, you can compare it as well, the case of Bismarck, to Cecil Rhodes.
1: Yes. Well, now you're striking close to home because, (laughs) of course, I went to Rhodes University. And, and
0: uh, I mean, you were born in Zimbabwe, so which was yeah. then Rhodesia.
1: Yes, and there was, of course, the huge protest mo- uh, movement at I think it was Merton College in Oxford, where there's a statue to Rhodes, who whose will, of course, uh, created the Rhodes Scholarship, and also part of his will was used to establish Rhodes University, which you could do for the. Quite low sum of fifty thousand pounds at the the start of the twentieth century. So that that was the original bequest that led to the foundation of Rhodes University in nineteen o four. And I remember that the huge controversy over the Merton College statue of Rhodes, which then uh, spread all around the world in in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement, and at the University of Cape Town, where there is a monumental statue of Rhodes. Uh, that statue was removed i don't know if imperialism on its own is a ground for condemning someone it's it's a, it's an interesting question though having said that of course the incursion by the british into the territories north of the limpopo which became rhodesia was devastating for the shona and ndaveni people who lived there so it's it's a difficult question do we Is there a difference between writing about people who did questionable things and determining and and yielding a moral judgment, which might be equivocal and neither wholly good or wholly bad, and having a statue of such persons up? I don't know.
0: Well, I mean, I think this is where anti-monumentalism, counter-monumentalism can be an effective tool because... I mean to take Rhodes as a, a second example in this examination books, I guess you could say that he was more directly involved in terms of he went to southern africa and himself perpetrated theft really from those communities i mean he was mining diamonds right that's what he was primarily yes. doing which obviously directly contributed to constructing an economic system which oppressed the indigenous peoples who were. Yes. I mean, my way of thinking on these sort of figures is that you can, some figures, obviously, I mean, you can look at the US and statues of General Lee. Yes. Which, I mean, really, when you think of the Confederacy, those statues. I, should be removed, and I don't say that they should be destroyed. I think they can be very effectively recontextualized, as you say, as historical objects, which are also objects which reflect a certain historiography, which are, you know is also a very important thing to keep a record of the way that people have thought about history in a museum or in another similar institution. That can also be done, I guess, for figures where <laughs> the acts perpetrated are not so direct or you know not necessarily speaking specifically about Bismarck or Rhodes now, but figures where, as you say, are lower who are lower on the continuum of awfulness that recontextualization can also be in the form of additional plaques or context information put around that yeah. statue wherever it is. I mean, you can also. Because to say this continuum, you think of General Montgomery in. Yes. I mean, he North was Africa. also sort of a horrible person personally, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, he was.
0: So you can think of this continuum, but there are, I mean, monuments to him in London. Yes. But they're not necessarily I, recontextualized either.
1: No, I mean, the idea of recontextualization hadn't actually occurred to me. But I do have direct experience of an alternate display, if you want to call it that, because in Salisbury, as it then was, there was a very famous statue of Rhodes. It was in the middle of a of a street which was then called Jamison Avenue and at the intersection of a street called Third Street, and it was right in the middle of a roundabout. And of course it had been there when when I left what was then Rhodesia in 1977, and when Uh, I went back in 1983. It wasn't there anymore. And I had no idea what happened to it. Mm -hmm. And then I happened to go to the National Archives, which was in a suburb called Borrodale in the north of Harare to actually get some historic photographs printed. And there was a garden at the back. And there in the garden was the statue of Rhodes. It had just Mm -hmm. been not, it wasn't even on display. It had just been left there as a place to put it. So I thought, you know, I was, I was, I understood why it was and should be removed and quite gratified to see that it was sort of peacefully at rest in the back of the National Archives. And I don't know whether that's still the case today. Uh, Interestingly, Rhodes University has kept its name. Um, When he was alive, Nelson Mandela got an honorary doctorate of law and accepted it from Rhodes University. And it it has weathered the pressure to change its name um and yeah and and one more example of the sort of graveyard of of statues is in Taiwan where uh, Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek who ruled Taiwan uh, after fleeing from the communist revolution and he, he himself was tyrannical but eventually of course Taiwan developed into a very pluralistic democracy there's been a debate about what should be done to his statues, which are everywhere. I've seen the huge Shanghai Shek monument, which is like the Jefferson Memorial with a massive statue of him, and that's still there, as far as I know. But other smaller ones, smaller statues, have been put at, in random collecting points in, in gardens. Uh, so, but to come back to the nub of what should be done, I think contextualization is probably the best thing that we can do to well either removal to somewhere less conspicuous because i suppose if we're not giving the person the air time or the vision time then we are to some extent redressing the balance without destroying the object or if the object is to be left in situ the idea of recontextualization but i want to take this to an extreme now and you know oh, and this of course
0: is you do man yeah. really,
1: you know I mean I think in our current condition those steps would work mm. but what if we found a statue that was verified as being one of someone truly awful like Caligula
0: mm.
1: I think the archaeological interest in that would be phenomenal And yet Caligula was an utterly horrendous person in in the things that he did to to other human beings personally. Would we display that or not display that? I I don't know. And What if in 2,000 years' time someone found a bust of Hitler? Mm. What would they do with that? I I, I don't – I mean, we haven't got any of those – sharp problems emerging thus far, but it raises a big question as to what would be done.
0: I think, and, you know, I, this is something I think about sometimes where we personally all draw the line between something, a figure that feels personal and a figure that feels historical. Because, say, even if you focus on your own family, if you look back to your You know, once grandparents feel personal, your great-grandparents do as well normally often because you've heard so many stories about them, maybe the next level up. But if we looked back in our family tree, which, I mean, we have done sometimes, and you find figures from, say, the 1700s, I mean, they don't feel personally relevant. They feel of historical interest.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So, but I think that to come to this idea of say, a stat, if we found a statue of Caligula, it wouldn't be displayed as a monument. It would be probably displayed as a historical object. Right.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: Which is the difference so, between monumentalism yes, and historical display.
1: Yeah. So, that that is that is true. Uh, and, and that's
0: uh, also why I think it's important not to destroy these objects i mean even if one found a bust of hitler that should probably be preserved for the historical record because it's also important to remember historically and be able to have those to interrogate why that was allowed to happen by society if you erase the monumental monumentalization of events or specific people, you also erase the conditions that allowed that to happen which yeah. you know if you don't remember history there's a higher likelihood that that is those conditions are going to be allowed to arise again
1: yeah you erase the lesson
0: in effect yeah. by erasing evidence.
1: Yes, I think that's that's very true. So in, in in the instance of Bismarck, a plaque saying, you know, this is Count Otto von Bismarck, Chancellor of the first German Empire from such and such, or second German Empire from such and such a date, uh, reunited Germany, controversially engaged in a program of colonization in Africa and other places where many indigenous people were slaughtered. That would then contextualize without destroying.
0: Mm. Yeah. Another point that I wanted to get back to with this push puppet form is what do you think it means that both Africa symbolized by this giraffe, which I mean, I find I understand artistic device, but I do not necessarily like the singularity of that symbol um, because I think it's quite non-specific. But, what do you think it means that here in this artwork, both Africa and Bismarck can reassemble themselves because these objects stand back up?
1: Well, I suppose it's like you could, on one level just say, "Well, it's a retelling of the story for the next group of people coming through the museum so they can see the same thing as the people did fifteen minutes before, so I think it's necessary that they not be permanently slumped over after one <laughs> press of the button." But you could also see it as uh, perhaps the lesson is eternal hmm. and just as the colonisation of Africa by Bismarck is something that happened, there can be bad historical events happening again.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it's that
1: recurrence that, that the reconstitution of the statues depicts.
0: Yeah. Something that I also did, despite my questions about it, find interesting about the symbol of... At- symbol of the giraffe is that the artist said that he chose it to also symbolise the way that European colonial powers appropriated animals and plants and natural resources by force. And We've already spoken about roads and the diamonds. And we've spoken before about Linnaean classification in the Fiona Hall episode. So, I mean, the way that the giraffe can be seen as a monument, this exotic view of nature as separate from human beings is also interesting.
1: Yes, but I mean, I must take issue with you on your objection to the use of the giraffe as a sort of uh, trite metaphor for Africa, because you do understand that giraffes don't exist anywhere other than on the continent of Africa, don't you?
0: Is this a trick? I mean, they're in zoos. No,
1: no, it's not. I mean, for example, if if one had used a cheetah, which is my favorite animal, you could arguably say, well, that cheetah could, isn't. Exclusively an Im- image of Africa, of course, primarily one, but there are cheetahs in Iran as well,
0: oh. and which I only found
1: out recently. But oh. uh, yeah, but I mean, I so I don't think that you should condemn the use of the giraffe because you know it's. Oh it, it yes,
0: well, I'm sure I would have been mightily confused if it had been a cheetah, and I would have thought, "What does Bismarck have to do with Iran?" <laughs> <laughs> yes. That would have been my first thought, so maybe you're yes. right. We do need these very blunt metaphors. Yeah. Um. A final note before we get to the your final assessment. So what I found interesting on this note of changing names, because, by the way, on that Rhodes debate, I read online that some students took to calling it the university currently known as Rhodes.
1: <laughs> it's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it?
0: Which really <laughs> reminds me of, you know, the artist formerly known as... Prince. Prince. um, Anyway, Julius von Bismarck said that he had considered changing his name for his career. I actually thought it was a stage name when I first saw it because I thought it was so outlandish. But he said, quote, there are people who don't see me as that progressive young leftist person anymore. They see an old white establishment figure. So, I mean, we could also question whether this exhibition is more about breaking down biases he sees as affecting himself. And I don't mean that in a very egoistical way. I mean the fact that, again, going back to this line of where we draw the personal relevance of historical figures to ourselves. Yes.
1: Yes, and, you know, you you could have this poor great, great, great nephew of Bismarck being blamed for everything that his great, great, great uncle did, which would be unfair. <laughs>
0: Yes. I certainly wouldn't want to be blamed for the things you've done.
1: <laughs> You'd carry a colossal historic guilt then, wouldn't you? Yeah. Per- yeah.
0: I would be permanently collapsed like that giraffe. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think of this artwork?
1: Yeah, I think it's very good. I think it's it's clever and uh it gets its point home and uh I I I take my hat off to the current von Bismarck for uh, coming up with the idea.
0: Oh, good. And do you have any advice for us?
1: Yes. Well, I I hesitate to give this advice because, of course, your mother began her life as a nurse. So this is really counter-factual health advice. And considering that Bismarck lived, uh, I've just actually checked until his 80s. Mm. And... Also, uh, I think that Churchill lived until he was 90 and he subsisted to a very large extent on chocolates and champagne. I think all these modern fads about eating vegetables and not drinking and not smoking are bad advice and that if you want to live long, you should uh, live like Bismarck or Churchill.
0: Be a living monument for as long as you Yes. Well, I think everyone should take that. I'm not going to say with a grain of salt because too much sodium is also bad for your diet, but carefully consider whether to follow that advice.
1: Yes, I think we should end with a disclaimer. I mean, both you and I have got law degrees. I think we should say nothing said in this program should be taken as advice. Consult your physician as to what's right for you.
0: uh yes we're always good to have disclaimers plastered everywhere maybe we'll put a written one on too but um thank you everyone on that note for joining us for this episode we hope you'll be able to join us again next week you can find us on instagram at art Dad Pod, and there are links to the uh, artworks we've discussed in the episode description thanks Bye.
1: bye bye